Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Psychoanalysis, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Philip Lance, and I'm a host of the channel. Today, I'm interviewing Robert Grossmark about his book, The Unobtrusive Relational Analyst, published by Rutledge in 2018. Robert um, Grossmark is a psychoanalyst working with individuals, couples, and groups in New York City. He is adjunct adjunct clinical professor at the New York University postdoctoral program in psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. He teaches at the National Institute for the Psychotherapies, the clinical psychology doctoral program at the City College of New York, and the Eastern Group Psychotherapy Society. So welcome to the program, Dr. Grossmark. Thank you so much, Philip. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, I must say that I am and have been an avid listener to the New Books in Psychoanalysis podcast, and so I'm particularly happy to be here and to be talking to you. Well, thank you. you. And yes, we have a growing audience and more and more people listening, so that's terrific. And so let's begin with our kind of uh, customary question on New Books in Psychoanalysis, which is what brought about the writing of this book? Yes, well... uh, that is always our beginning question, isn't it, on new books in psychoanalysis? Um, I guess I came to this because I was aware, as many people are, that more and more we see patients in our practices and in whatever clinical settings we're working in who don't seem to be able to utilize exactly the approaches that we have to offer them. And... Um, people who seem to be not able to use interpretations and not able to use uh, um, any reflection on what's going on in the moment. Um, more and more, we're seeing patients who seem to be have, have real difficulties in the area of self-constancy, of object constancy, people who seem to live in quite different worlds phenomenologically and psychologically. Um, and who we cannot assume uh, can enter into the kind of verbal interaction and dialogue we might uh, wish for as psychoanalysts. Um, unfortunately, often these patients are, have historically been seen as either too concrete or unanalyzable or resistant or uh, um, assaulting the treatment when... Um, they may engage in behaviors that uh, in the past might have been seen as acting out, and they don't uh, get engaged with talk with talking about things in the way that we want. Um, you know, and, and, and there's a history there, you know, in the 50s and 60s, Michael Ballant in, in writing in the UK, you know, he was a Hungarian immigrant to the UK, was um, had a similar comment uh, that was at the with the inspiration for his book, The Basic Fault. He noticed that patients at that time were not able to use the the customary analytic technique of the time, which was very 
what now I guess we would call a classical technique, relying almost entirely on interpretation. And he noticed that for those kind of patients, um, they couldn't utilize language. They were regressed patients. And language, rather than its uh, 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 meaning, really, words were objects uh, rather than meaningful communication. And patients like that seem to require a different register of psychoanalytic engagement. Let me stop you there just so we can... uh, go deeper into this this area of patients that can't be rich you know really kind of ironically i just finished four you know 10 minutes ago with a patient who's actually the opposite of the kind of patient i think you're talking about he came in with really um clear symptoms around hostility aggression and some very kind of dramatic sort of sexual symptoms and within two sessions it all crystallized for me, sort of a very simple Freudian interpretation about some compromise formations having to do with um, yearnings for a father who had left him, the family, under traumatic circumstances when he was 10. But in any case, my point is we do sometimes get these other kind of patients where it seems like we are able, I have to admit, it doesn't happen with me very often, but this one happened to be a, a, a really easy one to do some immediate interpretive yeah. work, but um, but you're talking about, obviously, a very different yes. kind of patient. Well, uh, uh, perhaps, and I think certainly what I'm offering, and, and, and as I describe it, is um, an addition, right, and not something that's in any way, uh, in, you know, a replacement for anything. And certainly, um, you know, you have a patient who's engaged on that level very quickly, and, and uh uh, we'll see. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll see where that goes. Um, but we're also, I'm, I'm interested in patients who have, in many ways, uh, quite advanced verbal capacities um, and and uh, intellectual capacities, um, or uh, um, very effective capacities in that area, and have developed lives. I mean, I certainly see patients who have uh, career successes. Um, uh, relationships, perhaps fa- you know, have developed families, uh, um, and uh, in many ways, parts of life have developed uh, a, in a way that looks uh, adaptive and competent. And there are still areas within that have been uh, partitioned off or sequestered inside that are um, that have uh, quite undeveloped aspects. And so the one can find people who have these very developed areas, but in their private life or in some kind of sexual area, um, they are struggling with phenomena of um, uh, uh, disorganization and depersonalization. And some very, as, as one listens uh, and allows people to bring in all of who they are, one can often find areas of what we used to call um, regressed areas, but certainly areas of diffusion and uh, uh, um, uh, uh, disconnection uh, where things are not quite as they seem and where there is some functioning of an alternative uh, kind of reality. So is, is, is that so, what I have a line from your book? Areas of the self that are much less likely to be reached by dialogic engagement. Um, so it sounds like that's, that's what you're yes. talking about. And, but couldn't we just think of that? That's the unconscious that, as psychoanalysts, we're always trying to bring into 
to dialogic engagement eventually. Right. So that's a nice, that, that, that's a good segue because I think that these areas typically, one of the things that would define them is areas that are not uh, available to be put into words. In, within psychoanalysis currently, there, there's been a great deal of interest in uh, the area that's not symbolized. And within a more classical tradition, we have the interest of, in unrepresented states. Um, and uh, uh, the, the, uh, there's a wonderful book by Levine et al., um, where there's a number of chapters from European and American analysts uh, working off of the work of Andre Green, where they're really interested in states that have no representation and symbolization. And they're asking the question of how we reach and engage with these kind of states. In the uh, more relational interpersonal world, we have the groundbreaking work of Donald Stern, who some years ago introduced the term unformulated experience. Um, but there are areas that have yet to have form, yet to have shape. And he asks the nice question, I'm not going to get this quite right, of you know, how do we look for what we don't know is there to be looked for? I think I got that totally wrong, but you get the gist. Um, you know, and Christopher Bolas has been writing about the unthought known, and, uh, and, and, and in the world of Beyond, certainly, uh, and the Beyondians were certainly interested in, um, in, in building the mind, in areas of the mind that, in Beyond's language, the psychotic part of the personality, but areas where thoughts do not take shape as thoughts and are yet to have form um, in beyond language, those are areas dominated by data elements um, uh, and where there has been a, a, a less than adequate alpha function to actually make, not only make words, but make the experience, which is why for many patients, uh, not all obviously, but for many patients asking how do you feel is, is a very complicated question. Um, and for many patients, and I'm still in the way answering your initial question of how I came to write the book, mm -hmm. um, is that I've been looking for a way to engage patients in an analytic process that uh, takes account of and works with these areas where people are not, because the, the, these are states uh, that are unrepresented and uh, uh, sensations, if you will, that have yet to um, come together as actual experience and certainly are not available to be talked about. And so I think that the, as Ballin was, was picking up in the 60s, you know, um, working with interpretation and asking people to use reflective functioning, uh, sometimes maybe way ahead of the patient who's in the areas that we want to get to, there is no reflective function, or it's, it's a reflective function that is perverse. And likewise, a more contemporary interpersonal and relational treatment that asks the patient to consider what effect he or she might be having on the analyst's mind or to offer aspects of um, our experience of the patient may also be so many steps ahead, in other words, speaking to the, to the part of them that can cognize and can, can pull things together in words. And when we do that, we are maybe inadvertently shaming or pushing underground the parts that are calling out to be atta uh, attended to and touched 
and known um, that have no form and are yet to have words. And so that's why one of the gists of the book is that where most much mental health treatment and certainly much psychoanalytic treatment has been so oriented to trying to bring people out of their areas of disorganization um, and uh, uh, damage and into uh, consensual reality and into um, to, to try and bring them into areas, if you want to use uh, an older language, of greater ego functioning. And I have the, the second part of the title, by the way, the book is called The Unobtrusive Relational Analyst Explorations in Psychoanalytic Companioning. And that's an idea that rather than bringing people out of their areas of pain and disorganization, um, we might lend ourselves to being drawn into their worlds, to companion them in the register. It's often an issue of register uh, um, and, and idiom to allow ourselves to be drawn into their world rather than seeking to draw them out of their world into ours. Um, and in my experience and what I try and relate in the book, this leads us into some just uh, interesting, as it were, altered states and um, uh, altered dimensions of human interaction um, in, in our work. And uh, why it's called, um, if I can go on, Philip, well, well that, let's slow down a little bit just because I want to uh, ask a couple of questions uh, or one question. So I heard Bayland, mm. I heard Beyond, and then I heard some relational authors. I think you mentioned Donnell Stern. Um, I first came across your work in a book, De-Idealizing Relational Theory, um, which is a collection of chapters. Um, and and I remember as I read your chapter, <clears throat> I thought, oh, he's an object relations guy. Oh, he's integrating <laughs> object relations and relational. But where? How would you place yourself in that landscape? Well, it's it's a, a nice nice question, uh, um, and and I chuckle. I've had some interesting uh, uh, events around this. You know, a few years ago, I had a, a case that I uh, presented at uh, I think it was Division Thirty Nine conference and. Sheldon Bach and Philip Bromberg were the discussants of the case, and it was then published in Psychoanalytic Dialogues. And I thought that I was working relationally, and I got a, a call from uh, some people who were putting together a, uh, a psychoanalytic casebook where each uh, psychoanalytic approach would be represented by a case, and they wanted to use my case because it represented Freudian analysis. Uh -huh. So. <laughs> which is to say uh, these things are interesting and fluid and uh, I think very, in a very healthy way are in motion. Um, I'm very interested, obviously, by object relations thinking. Um, and if you want a Venn diagram of where, of how these theories sit, where I'm sitting right now, I think, is on the, uh, is, I, I, I'm in the relational faculty at, at um, uh, NYU postdoc and my, most of my papers have come out in um, dialogues and um, contemporary psychoanalysis. Um, um, but in that Venn diagram, I think I'm in that area where relational overlaps with uh, object relations um, and contemporary Freudian, and there's some self-psychology in there and a strong influence of Winnicott. I would say that the, the, the piece of object relations that I, I carry with me 
Um, and treasure is the idea of entering into the internal world. Uh, and that it seems to me one of the major coordinates of how I'm engaging with patients and conceiving of what's going on. Um, the reason it's the unobtrusive relational analyst, I, I, I think I, would, I want to address that. But, but, um, you know, I was looking for a way to square a circle in a way, uh, um, to bring together how do we stay out of the way of a patient's full expression of who they are and to stay out of the way of the full expression of, uncon of the unconscious, given that much of that may not come in words. It may come in different dimensions. But at the same time, how to not get trapped in a kind of what I always experienced. There's a kind of straitjacket of uh, neutrality or abstinence. So um, how is one present and in one's own subjectivity and at the same time staying out of the way and valuing that things that come from the patient's mind and inner world are really where it's at. As, as, um, as Symington uh, uh, writes about how it's, you know, it's, it's the patient's life, not ours. And I really do think that we want the treatment to be totally the patient's and to be conducted in the patient's idiom and register, if, if that makes sense. I've gone a little away from the question about object relations, but it's the valuing that the patient's internal world um, will be expressed if one allows and invites that total expression. Well, I'm, I'm glad I heard Winnicott's name crept in there because um, I don't remember right now if there was a lot about Winnicott in the book, and you do a terrific job of integrating so much great literature. It was really a pleasure seeing how you brought in so many different perspectives and brought them together. But in some ways, it sounds like you're you're very much with Winnicott, who I didn't at the end of his life, he say some things about he regrets all the interpretations he'd made to his clients because, and, and he, he, he really valued this um, holding environment for the patient who may not have entered into the world of um, the mother being a separate object, the, the idea that people or are, are, are infants sometimes are still living within the world of the environmental mother. She's not yet a separate object. And so it seems like Winnicott yeah. is, is sort of a, a, a inspiration for your work. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. And just what, what you said, and uh, if you to, to, to borrow some of Winnicott's language for patients who have yet to develop and achieve unit status and who are going to relate to the analyst as an environment, an environmental mother, um, you know, patients who are going to take the analyst for granted and they need to, the object uh, um, in the chapter about psychoanalytic companioning, I, I, I build a lot on his fantastic um, paper from 1945, which really tells you something, <laughs> um, not only because it's so long ago, but that is, uh, you know, the Second World War and uh, many other distractions. Uh, um, and he was writing a paper called Primitive Emotional Experience, and he talks about how the infant uh, takes the mother for granted mm -hmm. and that she doesn't exist outside of, of the infant's needs, and she appears when needed, and she disappears when not needed. 
and it's uh, uh, thinking like that it is, that has greatly informed me, and I feel that when to to engage with those aspects of a patient's mind, uh, one wants to be able to lend oneself fully to that kind of experience and not fight it. I mean, that's I think the thing to to um, not uh, precipitously try and bring patients out of those kind of zones, because I think uh, when we do that, we abandon the patient, and often, and often those zones are full of a kind of inner and private pain and uh, desperation, uh, which is not formulated. It is just a sensation of pain, I think. Uh, and if we are quick to go into talking about things rather than uh, um, or trying to have the patient regard us as a whole object, um, we will abandon them and perhaps uh, greatly shame them. And I think I found just uh, some very um, rich and healthy work uh, as I've allowed myself to be um, engaged in those kind of registers with patients. Maybe, it's been exciting. Maybe you could give yeah. an example because I'm imagining um, this kind of unobtrusive work where the patient could go on for perhaps months, year, years without the analyst ever really maybe making much in terms of interpretations or, and who's just kind of there. Uh, how, how long can this go on? And doesn't ultimately something have to be said, you know, uh, about what's going on or, you know? Well, I, th- I, I, I think, uh, um, you know, things can be said. And I, I think I'd be, uh, I do want to say that unobtrusive and there's a lot I can say about the idea of being unobtrusive, but it doesn't mean simply, although sometimes it can mean, being uh, uh, really moderating one's uh, in, uh, verbal interactions and being um, allowing the patient that kind of space and quiet within which they can come to themselves. Um, um, and sometimes uh, being unobtrusive can be actually quite active and vocal because one is unobtrusive to the full expression of the patient's idiom, to borrow from Bowers, and one wants to be unobtrusive to the developmental needs of the patient, meaning when the patient has a developmental need to be in a more regressed relationship to you, which might actually involve asking you for concrete advice, for instance, to not be obtrusive to that and say, well, we don't do that, this is psychoanalysis, um, and to be unobtrusive to the developmental and emerging field. Um, there's too much to say about this to fit into our time, but I think when people come together and patient and analysts come together, something emerges that is greater than the sum of their two parts and often involves a fascinating uh, narrative, if you will, a telling of parts of the self and of the patient's pre-experience that have yet to have form. Now, the interesting thing about this is that you know these patients show they don't tell, but that showing is not just an individual fact. What we find, and this is where enactment is involved, um, the, 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 this, these aspects of a patient's mind and a patient's being really find expression because they're not going to find expression in words. It's very rare that a patient comes in and says, I have no self and object constancy. Can you help me, doctor? Um, but that kind of thing is going to find expression in what we would call the inactive dimension of the treatment. 
It's going to be in the emerging um, and living through of um, experience and happenings in phenomenological happenings between the patient and the analyst so that one finds oneself living out strange experiences um, with the patient which seem to be calls from this part of them. Um, I'd love to give you an example, but I did want to put these a couple of pieces in first that will help hopefully make sense of things. So that, um, because if we're looking at unrepresented, unformulated uh, states, um, we're not going to find them by asking about them or by asking, speak, asking the more developed part of the self. They emerge unbidden in the field of treatment. Um, and as you know, there's lots that's been written about the field coming from the South Americans, the, the Barangers or Barangers, um, and uh, certainly Pharaoh, Sidi Teresi, and so on have had a real interest in the field. But also the relational and interpersonal people have had a lot to say about the field. I, I, can I add also that I, I am a group analyst. I do group work, and the people in the group world have known for, for decades that when people come together in a group, there is an emergence of a phenomenon of the group as a whole that is greater than a simple addition of the sum of the parts, that there is an emergent phenomena. So I am interested, that's, that's the field in, in two lines, completely inadequate uh, explanation, but um, I am interested to be unobtrusive to and let the field, which involves the analyst and the patient and all of their unconscious function, obviously, and that we find ourselves living through some fascinating um, uh, experiences that have yet to have form. I mean, I'll give you a, a just one, one before I'm dying to give you an example, but I have one more piece to put in. So I'm always interested in what the patient and the field are saying, meaning I've taken seriously an idea that comes from Christopher Bowles, which is that there is a drive to represent the self. And I think that's really a key for me. And more and more I find myself thinking about it, that there, people are trying to find the form of representation of the self. And interestingly, he breaks it down that there's self-representation in words, but there's also self-presentation, which comes in actions. And I don't... Um, so I'm much less likely to see things as acting out. I'm much more likely to see people trying to represent themselves in a register, in a, if you like, a language that is bodily and somatic. So in paying attention to the field, I have the idea that this representation of what is yet to have form takes place with an other and involves the other, which would be the analyst. And that together we find ourselves living through, and this is a phrase used by Winnicott and by Betty Joseph, we find ourselves living through uh, parts of the patient's early experience that have yet to be experienced really or suffered. Or we find ourselves living through elements of the patient's mind. Your question, I haven't forgotten okay. your question. For an unobtrusive analyst, I say a lot, don't I? <laughs> um, um, uh, uh, um, your question about won't there be words ultimately? 
Well, of course there are words, and there are words all along the way as needed. But primarily in these areas, um, words come after a sense of being known. And I think that a major piece here is that these are patients who've never been known and never had someone resonate, register, recognize, and know them for who they are inside. And of course, that, that uh, misrecognition and lack of being known has had tremendous impact on them. And one is known not only by someone saying, I see you, I know you now, and I know this about you, which is, also, which is certainly what one sometimes, which, what is sometimes the sum of what we're saying, but also in action. Uh, um, look, I'll give you just a simple example. Um, this is not a case example, but just a little example. You know, a patient who uh, uh, um, uh, doesn't show for sessions and is absent, um, and uh, this goes on for a period of time, and I sit with an uncomfortable feeling, as many people would, a, a feeling of what's going on, um, has this person dropped out, um, but uh, 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 the patient does maintain contact, will often uh, communicate a text or a call uh, in between sessions, um, but there's a period of time where I don't see the patient and I feel a sense of dread and I feel a sense of, if you will, goneness. I'm very aware in the time that the patient isn't there that he's gone um, and I feel it viscerally. Um, it turns out that the patient was coming to my office and standing outside and finding himself unable to push the, the, door button, the doorbell and to come in. So to say that the patient was resisting or wasn't there sort of misses the point. I, I would, and I understand it, as the patient very much being there. And, you know, Sheldon Bach and Neville Simington talk about how patients don't actually have to be in the room to be in treatment. It's a very useful notion and helps a lot with these kinds of situations. Um, but the patient, with no awareness at all, had conveyed in action, in the enacted dimension, um, an experience of profound absence, loss, and goneness. And, um, you know, it transpired that you know, this is a patient who had spent much time waiting for parents who didn't show on time, uh, who would be neglected and left, not only physically, but left emotionally. And these experiences were yet to really be clear in the patient's mind. The patient uh, um, not only hadn't quite represented that as experience, um, but really hadn't developed feelings around that, but was riddled with uh, many symptoms of disorientation and um, uh, 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 kind of being lost as, as he would go around his day. So there would be a very simple example, like I could go on and on about the case, but I would say where one is looking rather than see what the patient isn't doing, as in, well, they weren't at the session and it is a resistance to a process, but there's actually a, a, a desperate cry from a part of the patient that has never uh, been known, who is crying to be seen and known. And isn't it interesting that that experience came in action and it came through my experience of the absence, which was uh, in a way painful for me and created anxiety and so forth. 
as I say that, hopefully that sounds uh, uh, comprehensible, but also not that complicated yeah. once you sort of do a kind of a figure ground shift that a patient is showing rather than not. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Well, okay, so this then starts raising questions in my mind about the frame, your emphasis on unobtrusively allowing patients to show in session or out of session to enact um, because we often begin to get pushed around the frame. For instance, a patient who brings me breakfast and sometimes lunch and wants me to eat in session with them, or the patient who wanted to leave his luggage in the waiting room for half a day. Um, and if I'm unobtrusive, I, I, so how do you handle issues where you really have to begin thinking about sticking to a more classical traditional approach of not sort of maintaining sort of strong boundaries? You know, it, it's an important question, and it's one when I, when I present, I'm always asked, um, um, can I come at it this way? That, that, you know, um, there's a great paper by Neville Simington called The Essence of Psychoanalysis, uh, and he talks about um, the, the, the difficulty when one gets confused about what is primary and what is secondary. And uh, he writes about what is primary is psychoanalysis, which means... Um, the internal work of internal change, uh, the transformation of the inner world. And what is secondary are the, is the format, is the way that we get there. And he writes about the many meetings of the international where he would, which he would find incredibly uninspiring when people would debate whether three times a week was psychoanalysis, but four times a week definitely was, and two times a week, well, that's not really psychoanalysis. And he uses it to say, look, we can so easily get caught on what he calls borrowing from Immanuel Kant. We can get caught on the phenomena and lose touch with the noumena, which is the thing itself. And the thing itself of psychoanalysis, I believe, is this profound representation and transformation of the self in a way that the patient can use, utilize, and do themselves. So that's a kind of coordinate as I think about your question about boundaries and to, to go to it, um, I think I welcome people who are expressing and that there are cases in the book, which I, I suppose some people more classically trained might, might uh, um, chafe a bit by some of what happens. But as one patient, the patient Kyle from the first chapter said to me, look, this is me. There's no other way I can do this. Um, and I think that's, uh, that needs to be listened to. Um, you know, when a patient drops off their luggage or their bags in your office and comes back later, that's a profound utilization of the object uh, in, in a nonverbal, unrepresentative form. Um, and I think if you start shutting down, well, we don't do that because we do psychoanalysis. I think you're speaking from phenomenal rather than luminal consciousness, if you get what I mean. Um, and I, I, I think that um, we don't. We want to invite all the registers that a person can use, and I think it's really important. Um, you know, um, there's a great paper by Lecour and Bouchard called "The Dimensions of Mentalization" from the International Journal, and in it, 
they, they're French analysts, and they talk about um, different dimensions of mentalization. And, uh, and, and, you know, of course, there's the level which is symbolized, but they also talk about motoric and non-symbolized mentalization. And I think this is really important because if we want to really reach the unconscious and if we have the idea that there is certainly, and you mentioned it earlier with your patient, the unconscious of repressed com- repression and conflict, um, but we want to reach other parts of the unconscious. And Freud was very aware of this. I start the book with a quotation from Freud where he talks about many different types of consciousness, only some of which his work has addressed. So I really take that seriously. So patients are inviting us into these different areas of consciousness when they bring food into the session. The issue of boundaries, I should say, there's obviously some important things to say in the realm of the real, which is you can only work if if you are comfortable within yourself because the most important boundary and the most important container and holding of the treatment is the analyst's mind. So we can only work comfortably if we can hold and then digest, contain what is being given to us. Um, But when the, my case is, um, the actual boundary of the treatment in terms of, you know, when the session takes place, whether or not the person is there, in some instances, they're, they're kind of rare, but uh, um, I mentioned them, um, but also payment, I'm someone who works in private practice, uh, you know, so that the structure is such that I feel I can do this work. So that, you know, I give you the example of the patient who wasn't physically in the room talking, but he was absolutely deeply in the analysis. Now, I don't know enough about your cases to know how one might mm-hmm. um, experience someone dropping off their baggage, uh, um, which now that I hear myself say that is beautiful because, <laughs> right, you hear it, right? The, yeah. the, the, that person what do you say? No, me. you can't leave your baggage with me. <laughs> right, and, and that, that would be on would say, well, look, of course, we, 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 something needs to be deposited in your mind. And it needs to reside there for a while until they're ready to metabolize it. And you would want to uh, um, metabolize that experience. And that makes a point I want to make, which is that often patients who have been derided in psychoanalysis is not analytic because they only want to talk concretely about the events of the day or, or what he said and she said, and they're not being insightful. They want to, they do things which have been called acting out, which is always a pejorative term. I mean, I, I, I mean even if one doesn't want it to be, it is. Um, uh, 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 um, but those patients often are the patients who are most deeply in a psychoanalytic process. And I, I, I think that because they are in a regressed transference where they want you to, as it, that's wonderful, Philip, thanks for that, where they want you to literally concrete, see them in the concrete motoric dimension of mentalization, they want you to hold their baggage. That's a very, very powerful psychoanalytic occurrence. To say that that's, you know, acting out of some sort, and also to try and talk about it quickly. What does this mean? What do you think that means? Or to introduce the idea of I felt burdened, or maybe I felt... 
is to bring it to a different developmental level, which would utterly uh, suffocate the very level that is being expressed by this patient, who I'm now feeling very warm towards as I'm speaking. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, um, does that? I hope yeah. that's clear. Yeah. It's still, uh, and I don't want you to answer this, but I mean, it still leaves me with having to make it. Let's say this is near the end of the session. Uh, do I say yes or do I say no? Ultimately, um, you know, to, so sometimes you don't, but I realize we don't know enough about this patient in this particular situation. Right. I, can't, I, can't, I can't say, but yeah. generally I can say a general thing, which, which, may, be, which may or may not fit with your, your case, of course. But, you know, generally I'm, my interest is to lend my mind and myself to be available for all these different dimensions of communication and representation. And therefore, when someone does that, I'm most likely to, to roll with it. And, and this gets into the chapter, the flow of inactive engagement. I'm likely to think, here comes a communication and an invitation, a call into another dimension of this patient's functioning that they can't tell me in words. So not only am I more likely, depending on reality and logistics and what I'm comfortable with, obviously, and what can, you know, what can fit in my office, right? But um, uh, um, um, I'm more likely to roll with it and to see what begins to arise, to respect the unconscious. I think that is so important to say because I think... Um, we cannot uh, contrive or dictate the, the representations of the unconscious. And I want to wait and see how that's going to feel and what is going to be the emergence in active dimension um, because people, you know, it's, and, and I, I, in the book, hopefully uh, some of the people listening will be interested to read the book and you'll see some just really interesting stories where I end up in territory that I could not have imagined and absolutely have not formulated about a particular case, but found myself, in, in, again, in Winnicott and Betty Joseph's words, living through an experience um, and living through a dimension, um, which ultimately, you see, and this uh, uh, speaks to the therapeutic action here, I think this living through and this being known in the dimension that is asking to be heard and reverberated with is really healing and um, healing in a way that sometimes words um, are not going to reach. Um, yeah, so that you're, you're, you're answering my penultimate question. I have one more after this, but yeah, uh, in terms of therapeutic change, you know, yes. the old, there were there kind of a debate. Some people said, well, it's insight, which, um, and others know it's more of the relationship, the corrective, maybe emotional experience with the therapist. But you're kind of, are you saying one, one of those, or you, you talked about living through with the patient something? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I, 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 I make a, a lot of Winnicott's use of paradox, and I, I, I very much uh, uh, which is evident in the title of being unobtrusive and relational, right? That, that, that mm. I, don't, I, I think we can be more than one thing at once, right? Um, and I think that in terms of therapeutic action, insight, 
comes in many different dimensions. And I think, you know, insight has been wrapped in something that is, um, you know, wrapped in some very smart psychoanalytic thought. Um, but I think that insight often comes um, with an, in the experiential dimension. I wouldn't say that um, my resonance with uh, the patient's expression of absence, um, and we did talk about it in that instance, so there was um, a, a, you know, a, a processing. Um, but I think that to think that insight has to be something that is well spelled out, uh, again, um, kind of uh, narrows our idea of uh, not only the unconscious, but of what human beings are capable of when they come together. Um, so I, I wouldn't, I try not to get caught in, you know, is it going to be inside or is it the relationship? Because from where I'm sitting, they're not necessarily separate things. Um, because I, th- I, I, I think that it, it, it is what I find is that when you do join in people's register, um, that people um, come together more as a, 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 in, in a, with a sense of wholeness and integration. And along with that comes the development of reflective function, functioning. And um, you do find people with, gradually with more and more curiosity. You can't be curious about your mind if you've yet to really experience yourself as located in your mind. Um, and that comes along. And that, that, that comes along and one can end up, you know, with um, talking at great length about how uh, a particular patient's mind works and so forth. Um, I, it was, I hope that's, uh, yeah. I don't, that's not an avoidant answer. I, I, I believe that quite seriously, that, that, that we need to respect, uh, again, respect the uh, depth of human functioning. Yeah. You know, I really appreciate this book because... I, it talks about a way that I feel like I and probably many psychotherapists and analysts are are kind of working in this area you're talking about, but because it but don't know that they are and haven't mm. gotten the language and the theory that you present in your book that helps us understand why I think a lot of us naturally gravitate toward toward the kind of work. Um, you're talking about it, but then you help us understand better what we're doing, why we're doing it, and, and in some sense reinforcing it. And um, as a, a candidate at an institute, I've always got this sort of super ego of the, my instructors in the institute saying, you know, you need to be making the transference interpretations, or you need to be making the conscious conscious in, in this more kind of older school way. And right. I think I, I, you know, I, you're an antidote to that. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, my, I have in my mind a wonderful line from uh, Thomas Ogden's paper on holding and containing, um, where he, and then he's coming from a Bionian, Winnicottian perspective, and he talks about how, uh, you know, the, the classical idea of making the unconscious conscious, but really what Dion and Winnicott are talking about is making the conscious unconscious, so that, in his language, we don't have time to get into it, so that the work of waking dreaming can proceed un, 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 uninterrupted. Um, I, 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 I have an empathy for the parts of the person who 
uh, who are yet to have representation and uh, and and are calling out in these other dimensions. Um, you know, you mentioned that that. that about how pe- people respond to my book, and indeed, that's exactly it. I think it's uh, um, many people have said, you know, you put into words something that I was that I kind of knew, but it, it's kind of an unthought known. Like I, I think, and I think just like, uh, if you will, a good interpretation. I was taught uh, in my doctoral training by I. H. Paul, the late and wonderful I. H. Paul, at the City University doctoral program, among other wonderful teachers, I should say, and. Uh, you know, he would say, "How you know? How do you know an interpretation has worked?" Well, and he was a classical analyst. It's not when people go, "Oh, wow, I never thought of that," but it's when you get a sense of, "Uh huh," a kind of, "Yeah, I knew that. I had never quite put that together." Um, and I think uh, that, that that makes me happy when people respond to my uh, book like that. Uh, um, alongside, I think an idea that I am trying to open up. Uh, something that is relatively that, that is a bit new in, in the idea that uh, we want to work in these other dimensions um, and take them for what they are and engage with them on their own terms. Um, well, in in one minute or less, are you working on another book, or has this book made you not want to do another book? <laughs> oh my goodness! Quite the opposite. Okay. I am. I'm, uh, uh, energized, and um, I have too many writing projects uh, uh, going, and um, I'm not sure how it will coalesce into a book. I'm currently interested in um, what I'm calling psychotic shame, um, uh, but that's a whole other story. Okay. <laughs> um, <and laughs> we don't have time, and I'm sorry I didn't get to really talk about a case. All I can say. To, to the listeners is um, take a look at the book, which um, my case, the cases are extensive mm-hmm. and um, hopefully really illustrate the ideas that we've been talking about. Um, uh, yeah. Well, thank you very much, um, Robert, for contributing this book to us. Well, and thank you, Philip, for, for the invitation and for such a, a welcoming and unobtrusive interview. <laughs> yeah, you're very welcome. You've been listening to an interview with Dr. Robert Grossmark about his book, uh, his book, The Unobtrusive Relational Analyst, Explorations in Psychoanalytic Companioning. Um, here at the New Books and Psychoanalysis a podcast, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. Check out our website and feel free to email me with your comments and questions. Thanks for listening.